Hello and welcome to this week's episode of New Narratives Political Agenda, our fortnightly podcast on contemporary issues and current affairs in Singapore. And we're coming to you on a very rainy Monday afternoon, so please forgive the sounds of rain and thunder in the background. I'm your host, PJ Thumb, and with me as usual is my brilliant co-host, New Narratives Editor-in-Chief, Kirsten Han. Hello! So Kirsten, you've got a new book out. Yes, it's a very small one. I just I feel like it's quite odd to call it a book because I feel like compared to the effort of most people who wrote a book, <laughs> this is a very small one. Right, it's called Silhouette of Oppression and it's published by Epigram yep. and available... Um, it's available at the Hugs Epigram Coffee Bookshop that's in the URA Centre and also available in you know bookstores like Kinokuniya. Cool. So with us today, we have two guests. First of all, uh, our first returning guest, I believe, Ian Chong, a political scientist. How are you, Ian? Good, thank you. Now, uh, for those of you who've been listening to our podcast for a while, will remember Ian was in our very first podcast on nationalism. And today we're talking about fake news and uh, foreign intervention and freedom of expression. And Ian, I know you've actually written a book on this topic, on external intervention. Yes, that's right. And when you mention it, I hear the thunder going off. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also with us today is Terry Shi, Editor-in-Chief of The Online Citizen. Now, Terry, I know you've been charged with criminal defamation. I, can you comment on how that case is going? Yeah, yeah I can. Um, basically, what we are doing now, we are uh, uh, bringing the case to the Court of Appeal to challenge the constitu- constitutionality of the criminal defamation, defamation law because it goes against Article 14 of our Singapore Constitution. Right, mm. which Article 14 is... It's uh, Article 14, basically... Uh, protects one's oh no not protects it's it, it actually ensures one's uh, right to freedom of expression freedom of assembly right yeah yeah basically that cool well good luck do you know when that will be heard that challenge and uh, March and March and March early April yeah okay so about uh, less than a month we're recording this on the Monday eleventh of March um, and uh, so we're going to talk today about. Uh, fake news, it's been a year or so since the select committee hearings on deliberate online falsehoods. You finally get to talk about fake news. Yes, yes, <laughs> I spent six and a half hours in there and never got to talk about fake news. So finally, here's my chance. Uh, but Kirsten, why don't, why don't you um, help our audience set the context for our discussion today about the past year, fake news, the proposed laws and so on and so forth. Yeah, so it's been almost a year since the Select Committee held their open hearings and last September they published their report. So their report made um, 22 recommendations to the government, which the government almost immediately accepted, which, you know, I suppose it's very efficient because if you have members of the cabinet in the committee, then it's very easy to accept what you contributed to yourself. Uh, And so we haven't yet seen a bill to deal with deliberate online falsehoods or foreign interference, but they've talked about it to the press and in parliament and mentioned that uh, an anti-fake news law could be introduced, or the bill could be introduced in the first half of this year. And there was also talk about also bringing in laws to deal with uh, foreign interference in Singaporean politics. So we've yet to see the details of any of this, but we know that it's coming. Right. 
I think this, you know, the fact that you mentioned, uh, as you mentioned, um, cabinet members were in the select committee. That's normally not how a, a select committee runs, as far as I understand, right? A select committee is supposed to be comprised of backbenchers who gather information and then submit a report to the policymakers. So normally in a select committee in a Westminster parliamentary system, you wouldn't normally have cabinet members sitting and especially decision makers, right, sitting in the same committee that's supposed to make recommendations. And I think this is one of the things that uh, made us very suspicious of the select committee to begin with. Although, of course, we decided to participate in good faith and that didn't get us very far. Yeah, you, I mean, usually you wouldn't want to own self recommend to own self sort of scenario. I do it all the time. Can <laughs> <laughs> me? I, I, I shouldn't. <laughs> Well, uh, Ian, why, why don't you, uh, you know, help us understand a bit about, um, you know, fake news. Uh, give us a bit about the, the you know, uh, context and the historicize it for us, uh, you know, given your own uh, expertise and, and research. Why are we concerned about fake news, I guess? Well, I won't claim expertise on it. And uh, it, it is, I have to say this because it's rare that a historian asks a political scientist to historicize right. an issue. <laughs> So at least you agree I'm a historian, right? The select committee <laughs> did not agree I was a historian and said, oh, how can you be in a, the anthropology department and be a historian as if, you know, interdisciplinarity doesn't exist and research clusters don't exist and they don't know how academia works. And anyway, in the spirit of interdisciplinarity, yes. then I will say that <laughs> uh, this issue of uh, fake news and how it can get out of hand is not new to the internet era, so to speak, the, or, or new to uh, the social media era. It's something that we have seen historically in all cultures and all, uh, and all settings. So um, just to re give a few examples, if you think about the, uh, the hysteria over witchcraft, this is an example, again, of people being misinformed, uh, believing in things that are untrue and getting carried away, right? And this can have very fatal consequences for people identified as witches, right? Um, and we, we've seen this in, in, um, in medieval Europe. Uh, in China, there's actually a very famous book by a historian by the name of Philip Kuhn called Soul Stealers. Um, it talks about uh, how this belief in witchcraft and sorcery in uh, mid-Qing China created a mass hysteria that led to a lot of social unrest. Uh, when you look at the, um, the White Lotus uh, movement, the Boxer Rebellion, or the Boxer episode in, in China, uh, these are again examples where people with uh, certain beliefs that uh, they come, come, uh, come across from charismatic leaders or from um, information that uh, they seem to have or already are predisposed towards, they can uh, get themselves into sort of mass movements that are very violent. Now, uh, of course, that's the extreme end of things. My point is just to say that these uh, issues of mass hysteria based on very poor information because people are not thinking critically, they don't have enough uh, you know, the variety of information or that they don't look at it, uh, is a historical phenomenon. Uh, in Singapore, uh, in the 60s, there was this coral scare Oh, ni nicely timed thunder. Uh, there's this coral scare where uh, people uh, living in, uh, in and around pig farms apparently believed that the new vaccination given to pigs would cause uh, male penises to shrink into their bodies, causing death. 
it's true. Um, and they uh, and that created a lot of hysteria. Uh, people were crowding hospitals, and the and that was based on erroneous information, clearly. But it spread, and the state effort to try to address this. So the Ministry of Health came about and saying, no, no, this is not true. But they did it in a fairly ham-fisted way, uh, without really understanding how people came to believe in things. And that actually exacerbated the problem. People felt, oh no, you know, that there must be something wrong here. So it actually exacerbated the problem and more people went to the hospitals. Now, uh, it was only through more sort of uh, time-consuming, painstaking sort of outreach efforts that this disinformation was finally dispelled. And this was all, you know, without the help of social media, without the help of uh, the internet. So the, my point being that this sort of misinformation, if it's willful, disinformation, uh, um, uh, sorry, disinformation if it's willful, misinformation if it's not, uh, you know, that has been around with human society since forever, really. Right. You mentioned this in your submission to the Select Committee. I think you said uh, Koru was uh, 1967 and peaked around 97 cases a day, you know, which in a population of just uh, over a million back then is a huge, huge number. So clearly we have this history of, of fake news um, spreading, you know, all throughout uh, history, recorded history, fake news has been a problem. Uh, so what is it now that we are so concerned about or uh, that um, the Singapore, the current Singapore government is so concerned about, which I, I feel are probably two separate things? So, I look at things quite broadly. So, in terms of disinformation, my real concern is when these things get weaponized by states uh, or by uh, large, well-resourced entities, including um, possibly terrorist organizations, corporations, so on and so forth. And the concern here is that they can cause a lot of um, chaos uh, within society. They, they can... Uh, cause a lot of distrust in state institutions and also among uh, individuals and groups within society. That having been said, right, um, the fact that there are state actors involved in the uh, creation and propagation of fake news, you know, this is something that states tend to do a lot. When you think about propaganda, uh, this is you know, not this is common to almost any state, any regime. They involve they involve themselves in various kinds of propaganda, uh, and when they do this. Uh, very often, it's targeted against particular individuals or groups they do not like. And the, the other side of the, the, the use of uh, the man manipulation of information, if you will, is the targeting of uh, uh, people who might be in weaker positions. Right? So there's the, the protection of minorities and minority rights issues um, in, in a society. There's also how a society can be attacked. So these are different aspects of security uh, that relate to, uh, to fake news and uh, disinformation. So when you look at the state uh, or state entities going after people based on erroneous information, think about the Red Scare uh, in the US in the 50s is McCarthyism, right? People, especially people in the media and in, in the entertainment world were branded as communists, as threats to national security, and they were persecuted, they were put in jail. Um, if you look at um, the you know, places on the other side of the Cold War divide, whether this is during uh, Stalin's purges or whether this is during the anti-rightist campaign, the, um, the Cultural Revolution, 
uh, people in China were branded as rightists, uh, and they were targeted, they were put in jail, they were sometimes killed. And a, a lot of this is based on untrue information about whether these people are actually threats to the state or not. But I think at the like to back up a little bit, there's also concern and you know not not completely invalid that social media and the internet allows things to happen at scale and speed. That's that's new. So the fake news sure. part is not new, but the scale and the speed is. And and you know that there have been issues like you know uh, a lot of people have pointed out how Facebook has facilitated you know violence in Myanmar and in Sri Lanka. And they've been going on for, for forever trying to get Facebook to do something about it. And it's only now that Facebook is starting to move. So, th- so there are, you know, areas of concern that kind of trigger people to, to worry about this. And I think what I'm worried about is when, when states or when powerful people leverage these sorts of valid concerns to then use it for their own goals as well. I will just add one more other thing. Apart from the scale and the speed, there's also the variety. So apart from, you know, just television, word of mouth, the radio, um, what, and now we, we talk about Facebook because it's been in the news, but uh, recent, more recent studies of the propagation of uh, false information finds that when you look at chat, chat platforms like uh, WhatsApp, like Line, like WeChat, they are full of false information that gets spread around and these are it's far more difficult to monitor and police the, the false information that comes across these trust networks now terry uh, as a fellow uh, editor in chief uh, sorry a fellow publisher of uh, an online uh, publication um, i'm sure you've been accused of putting out fake news yeah more yeah. than often and so what happens then can you can you talk our uh, listeners through what happens when the you know the current government or the authorities accuse you of putting out fake news well it depends you know? um there are cases where i'm accused of putting out fake news they would just put out a statement saying that oh toc published our fake news and 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 you have to believe me that that, that they really did that or they would take the approach of uh, like uh, suing us so uh, the first time they did so was uh, the using POHA, Protection uh, uh, Against Harassment Act, I believe. Uh, and then we took, took them to court. They took us to court and we fought it out. Eventually we won uh, and they were de- uh, therefore deprived of the use of POHA to defend themselves against harassment, MINDEF particularly. And I think that that's the two different approach they basically do. Either they put out statements uh, or they would go to parliament and say that oh this is uh, TOC has um, uh, made false allegation, but with no evidence to back what they say. Uh, I, I, so like as an example, I think one one particular case I'm going to mention in parliament saying that oh, TOC lied during the Benjamin Nims case where we reported on various accounts. They were saying uh, one particular one was. Um, uh, uh, and was mentioned during the select committee hearing, which is the T-shirts that the uh, that the police wore uh, T-shirts with a police word behind. So uh, basically, what the government did was to say that oh, uh, there was no such a thing. The parent who actually told TOC was uh, mistaken, but they did nothing else to to uh, to prove to the public that that's the case. Uh, uh, if 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 you ask me, the best thing that they could do was to show a CCTV footage 
of the police walking in with uh, their clothes uh, with uh, no police signs on it. But but the what they did was simply just to exercise uh, for K Shamukum to actually exercise the parliament privilege and then therefore accuse TOC of lying in parliament without showing definite proof that that TOC did lie. And and this this is my problem with the uh, government having the arbitrary uh, the final say in terms of truth, because it cannot be that they need not uh, produce any evidence or produce any uh, source to say that okay this person is lying or this person is whatever without proving to the public that that is definitely case yeah. yeah i mean i i've experienced the same thing i've been accused of lying very much about my historical research but i have all these documents and citations and the government thus far has refused to produce you know, a single piece of evidence uh, to substantiate their side of the argument and refuse to declassify the documents that they definitely hold within, you know, special, well, the Internal Security Department. Um, for the benefit of our audience, could you also explain briefly takedown orders ah. and how that has mm. affected you? You know, it's interesting. You know? uh, it's, I only experienced one takedown order, which is the one that I got from INDA. Under, so they issued, on my birthday, 18th of September, they issued me a takedown order under the Internet Code of Conduct, saying that this particular letter, which was published by Daniel de Costa, back then known as Willy Sum, uh, uh, saying that it contravened its Internet uh, Code of Conduct, and therefore under this particular act, so-and-so, uh, I'm... I was to take down the uh, letter within six hours, which I did uh, within the next hour or so, and and complied. And that that was the case. And so, uh, okay, so people will wonder, okay, what if I do not take down the order? It, it it's it's quite amazing to me that the if I were not to comply with that thing, it carries a uh, jail sentence, which I think is actually quite quite overbearing. Uh, to say, uh, I I would actually suppose that that should be or revocation of license or something that something is pertaining to, uh, p- pertaining to the action itself. But but in this case, if I were not to comply with that take down order, I would be subjected to jail sentence. Yeah. How long is the maximum sentence? May I ask? I think two years. But we've seen like that's limited in scope, right? So they also tried to issue. I, I, from what I understand, they also tried to issue takedown orders to the States Times Review and Singapore Herald more recently because of the story that they put about um, Lee Sien Long being a key target in the 1MDB investigations, which MAS and, and other government agencies debunked, and they sent the takedown. And then States Times Review said, we refuse. Um, but because they are not in Singapore, there was limited you know, you repercussions. See, they could only block the site. So the thing is, right, for f- the letter which I got from IMDA uh, addressed me as a licensee that that uh, that they are in charge of. So whereas for, let's say, if a platform, say, say some review or the my coverage uh, dot M-I-M-Y, uh, exists out of Singapore and therefore they are not the licensee where IMD uh, has uh, authority over and therefore they let the take down order that they issue to the different entities right it's it's more like a can you please take down kind of request because the thing is our, our jurisdiction does not cover them it does not cross borders so it, this yeah so so basically the take down order does not does not actually uh, unable to enforce the powers that, that is similar to to me, TOC. Right, this this yeah. license is the internet uh, class license, right? So, the way the law is worded, it actually covers everyone anywhere in the world. But they 
it can only be enforced if the people who run this site come into Singapore. Is is that correct? That's my understanding. No, I don't think so. Though. It's it's more like a if you reside in Singapore, you yeah. run a blog, you have your Facebook account, you have Twitter, etc. Anything that basically is an electronic means of communication. So you have a default license. You don't mm-hmm. have to apply. You simply have it. Right. Uh, only like for entities like weird entities like TOC, uh, the Independent Singapore, uh, the defunct Middle Ground, these three entities are given special license by IMD, which, which compels them to declare their source of income, the uh, who are the editors other than that all the other license all the other bloggers or the other website holders are basically they have a default license only if they reside in singapore i suppose yeah. though if they operate are, out of singapore i suppose though if there are laws in foreign jurisdictions that you know pertain to take down all that the singapore state as a legal entity can probably challenge in a foreign court if they wanted to but uh, they haven't so far. Lah. Not but, that I've known of. But that only pertains to like defamation. I think particularly defamation because the other stuff like uh, say public disorder and stuff, uh, it's, it's, it's very different. Though. It's a very different ballgame where in Singapore we can say that, oh, we have to pre, uh, we have to act before that thing happened. But in other countries, they will say that, okay, had that thing happened, because they, it, it, you, for them, it's like you have to prove that this really caused a certain thing happening first before, uh, say, this person can be held account, uh, held account or held responsible, be charged for it. Maybe, but I mean, this is, this is a legal issue, right? That mm. I suppose if uh, the state were really, really committed, they can try to test. La. There's nothing to stop them trying. They may, they may lose the suit, but yeah. they can try. Yep. But provided they have a law... That provided they, yeah. correct, provided yeah. there's a law in that jurisdiction. Yeah. But at the moment, in, in, so in our own jurisdiction, we, well, we still haven't seen the bill, and we, so we don't actually have the law yet. But what we also don't have at the moment is the, a working definition of deliberate online falsehood that people can understand. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about fake news and a lot of talk about deliberate online falsehood and how these are harmful, but we don't know necessarily what, you know, the the current PAP administration means when they say deliberate online falsehood. And as we see with the TOC Benjamin Lim case, right, um, there was an accusation of malicious intent without it being found by the court. So it was just stood out in parliament and said TOC is running a malicious orchestrated campaign against the police. And, and that was not proven, right? You know, not everything that turns up in the media that is wrong is evidence of malicious intent. Even the most well-respected media publications get things wrong sometimes because sources you interview might misremember things. They might... Um, say something and then turned out that they were wrong. You might not have all the details at the time if it's a developing story. If the government agencies don't respond to you, you cannot be faulted for not having their side of the story. So the, it's, it's kind of well known that, you know, breaking news, developing news, is not always the full story and fully accurate from that point because it's just based on what information you have at that point. So to then say, oh, this was wrong, and therefore it must be a malicious campaign, is really very troubling because it, it kind of imposes intent without it being having gone through a trial, without TOC being able to put their point of view. Right. So then I mean, I, I got an example on, on this. So I was in Washington, D.C. on 9-11, and uh, one of the things that came about was 
um, as you all know, the Pentagon was hit by uh, aircraft, right? And from certain angles, it, it looks as if there was smoke coming out from the State Department because it's further down south that you have the Pentagon. And what the news in the local news in DC was reporting was that uh, the, there was a car bomb outside the State Department. This uh, caused a lot of panic. Um, and people were already panicky and there were lots of people in the streets. But this was clearly a wrong report, right? But if that panic has... It didn't, but it, it caused a stampede and, and, and uh, injuries, right? Then what would the culpability be? I think in that case, it was a very confusing situation. The news report... The reporters were do, were reporting what based on what they, they felt was true, based on what information they were receiving. Um, and should they then be culpable for something, uh, right? Uh, so th this is this is a real life example of how difficult it is to pinpoint what is deliberate or not, and you, and also just because something has negative effects doesn't mean that the intention, right? There's a difference between intention and outcome, right? That the intention was necessarily malicious. And that's one of the problems that I have with like the term fake news or deliberate online falsehood, and that it seems to create this binary between something is either fake or it's not fake. But you're not taking into account the many ways that things are reported or portrayed in the media. So it might not be fake, but it could be skewed. It might not be fake, but it has, you know, political slant or, you know, a, a report that that omits certain things. It's not fake, but it's not necessarily every, everything in the story. So people actually need to be encouraged to think about it in this way and to always be questioning rather than think oh this is a real story and this is a fake story yeah or it might not be fake it might just be two genuine different opinions or yeah. people who remember the same situation in two different ways right if you've you know if you've ever had an argument with a loved one and gone back to talk about it you know sometime later i'm quite sure the two of you will have remembered that whole argument in very different ways. It, it happens to all of us. It's, it's human nature. And yet, you know, the, the problem is then, as you, you said, trying to um, evaluate and, and codify and put this into statute, some sort of definition, when human nature makes it impossible for us to ever define this, I guess. Right. I think there's also a belief, right, that there is a definite knowable truth out there that is unchanging. I suppose with mm. some, with with some phenomenon that may be possible, but um, with lots of things, you know, our understanding changes as we get more information. Um, as you know, things that we feel are extraneous with the certain thing goes goes away. I mean, you for for a long time, right? People believed that the world was flat. The Earth was flat. They be, they didn't believe in evolution. Uh, they believed that the uh, sun revolved around the earth. I mean, the, the, these are sorts of things. People sincerely held these beliefs, but as they got more information, well, they, they were disproved. Um, so while there is some sort of, I suppose, celestial truth out there, the mm. lived experience, right, was very different. Yeah. I, I, um, one example I'm reminded of, of course, is advertising. Um, because when advertising was first sort of uh, invented and um, people started advertising products, uh, the public tended to accept that unquestioningly, assuming that because it was in print and you know in in potentially authoritative uh, places like newspapers that it was true. But over time, we have come to realize that advertising 
its its goal is to sell us things and it, it is actively seeking to manipulate us. So I think most people, um, you know, having grown up surrounded by advertising, accept that it is, uh, there is a whole manipulative aspect about it and are naturally skeptical towards it. So it's, uh, it's also how human society adapts and changes um, to changing circumstances regarding the, you know, information regarding the, uh, the, the sort of knowledge, or inf- you know, the, uh, the, the information that we are bombarded with on a daily basis, right? We adapt, we change, and, um, you know, we, we learn to recognize and be more discerning just through a, a natural process of adaptation. So, right, I mean, you look at uh, cola drinks, we now know are sugary and bad for health for a very variety of reasons. Uh, I mean, when they started off, right, they were uh, marketed as medicinal products. Right, or cigarettes, products. right? Cigarettes, healthy cigarettes, you know. I mean, it's, it's all about the media literacy, right? So, like, when the Brothers Lumiere first um, screened their, one of their pioneer films, The Arrival of a Train, people actually started to run because they thought the train was actually coming at them. And then it took, it took a while to be like, oh, this is film. This is, you know, it's not real. It's just, you know, moving picture. And then people, people basically adjust their reality to, to understand what they are seeing. Uh, so before we, we get into too deep uh, a philosophical discussion about the the nature of knowing. Sorry, right? <laughs> my fault. <laughs> it, it's, it, to come back to what we're talking about, it seems to me that we're all actually, you know, both the, the PAP government and us on the ground here today and, and other people around the world, what we're actually all worried about the same thing and that's states, uh, you know, weaponizing propaganda. Yes, just like that. <laughs> We're all worried about the same thing. States weaponizing propaganda for their own purposes, right? And states are the, the main source of worry because they're the ones with the resources, uh, with the you know, power, the influence to be able to put across um, you know, their, their, uh, their version of, um, or their perspective on the truth and in a, in a very powerful, compelling way. Um, but the difference is, it seems that the current Singapore government is worried about foreign actors undermining their power to do that in Singapore. And us Singaporeans are worried about our own government doing that against us. And that seems to be the, the main divide with regards to why we are concerned about fake news. Probably take an example. I don't know whether you call the um where there was a public outroar over the culling of jungle fowls. So so the thing is, it's very widely known that the jungle fowls here are the ones that are being narrated on BBC World that they are endangered. They are a rare species, but it, but AVA the uh, or the government the PAP government itself basically uh, insisted that they were not not endangered. They were just normal jungle fowls. Uh, and they even went to Parliament to say that no, they were not jungle fowls. M- uh, MP Louis Ng actually insisted that they, no, they were the ones that were actually endangered. Um, so going back and and then during the select committee, you have Janelle saying that uh, figures and the uh, sorry the statistics, the facts must have co- uh, must come from or the government should be part of them in order to be considered as truth. So meaning right in that case. Everyone knew that the jungle fowls that were being culled by AVA were were basically the endangered ones. But the thing is that government simply insisted that they they were not, and that becomes the truth. So, 
in in the event, say if the law were to come come out as what we predict to be, someone writes that oh, uh, the government has called uh, endangered jungle fowl, and the person who wrote that basically it's considered as uh, uh, was in violation of the um, deliberate online falsehood because the thing is the government has really said that it's it's not true. But yet, he still uh, went ahead and published it. And and I and and as a publisher, that's that's what I'm actually concerned about, that the government becomes the arbitrary of truth. <clears throat> Excuse me. I would add also something else, that doesn't hasn't come up as much in the public uh, discussion. But worries me as somebody who tries to study and look at security, which is, if there is so much authority and trust put into state agencies, and w- Basically, we don't have any redundancy in terms of looking at ways of verifying information, ways of looking at veracity and and seeking uh, confirmation and corroboration. If I were a malicious external entity, that actually makes... As I was saying, if I were a malicious external entity, uh, external state entity with lots of resources, that actually makes my work easier. What I can then do is to spoof... Uh, the you know, official uh, official information or if uh, I'm able to or and committed to doing so I can take them over and then spread far more pernicious confusing information through state channels that originally had the trust of the population and the net effect of this over time is to really erode um, public trust in any uh, sort of source of uh, information it has the ability to create a lot of confusion and so you know if I really wanted to mess things up as it were as a, as a foreign state entity that's what I would do and these um, laws or legislation that target domestic actors, sometimes corporations that may be international, they don't really go, um, they don't really deal with this problem in anywhere um, and as effective as a, uh, a manner as I think would be ideal. Because look, if I, were in, if I were intent on creating a lot of confusion, then sure, the you know, sites, whether it's a TOC or New Narrative or Straits Times or Today or Zaobao, they're expendable. It's great if I get them shut down, it's great if I make people not trust them. Um, and so, you know, I, I would go in, if these sites get, get somehow um, undermined, wonderful. I, then I'll look, go on to the, ne- to the next one and ultimately, at the end of the day, you would have shot all your few um, sites that might er- otherwise have, uh, you know, some veracity or trust. So by putting all our eggs in one basket and demanding that there's such concentration over the arbitration of what is true, what is not, um, that actually exposes our society uh, in some degree to greater risk uh, because we have, uh, instead of spreading out our risk, we have pulled it. We have, we have concentrated it. Right. So there's only one source of the quote-unquote truth. Whoever controls that source right, controls the truth and has the ability to cause a lot of damage. And as we discussed um, in this podcast a few weeks ago, our government cybersecurity doesn't seem to be very strong. So we can't even have confidence that there are good measures out there to prevent our government's computers from being hacked, given all that's happened in the past couple of months, right? I, you know, we don't even have that, that, that confidence 
in um, in the government's in in the uh, the, the you know the state administration cybersecurity. Well, that's one side of the issue, yeah. right? Which I think is important, and you guys have touched on. But there's the other side of it too, and this also comes up with the with the cyber with the with the hack on uh, cyber attack on uh, on on Sing Health, which is okay. So you are able to to fend things off to a certain degree. You are able to maybe contain the damage in in one instance. But what can you then do to prevent uh, further occurrences? So like I said, right, if I were a concerted uh, state actor that wanted to target Singapore, I look for all kinds of targets to, to go after to really mess up your society. So um, then the question would be, okay, how can I, if I'm going to stop further recurrences, what kind of countermeasures do I need to take? Um, and your laws are not going to be very useful. I mean, are you going to then try to arrest a foreign head of state or the head of a foreign intelligence service? Uh, you know, and then when you do think about countermeasures, you uh, are you going to do disinformation back? Are you going to look for other asymmetric measures? You can do that, but then there's also the risk of escalation because the question will be then: Can you control the escalation? Will you, in your response, make things worse, and will you potentially have things spin out of control, and then everyone would be worse off? And I think what strikes me about the Select Committee on Deliberate Online Falsehoods is that it completely left out this discussion. No, but the thing is, sorry, I think. It's, it's actually pretty confusing. It's in what do they seek to achieve through this uh, deliberate online falsehood bill. As, as Ian mentioned, um, the bill doesn't seem to be able to address, uh, say, foreign intervention uh, if they were to be. Say, if the CIA or the China were to, were to really intervene uh, by, say, investing in uh, so-called local media, etc., they only can get the runners, meaning the, the people who run the platforms, people who post on the WhatsApp or social media uh, posting. But they can't do anything to the perpetrators. And in fact, the existing law already addressed this issue of having to, uh, if someone were to collaborate, with uh, external powers, the government has already got the power to, uh, to so, so okay, apprehend or to to so called call this person in for questioning. The this this fake news law seeks to address the source, but clearly it doesn't. And and in, and also inside the whole discussion, uh, remember one of the example mentioned was the Miami's fake news where it uh, caused a, uh, a riot and uh, with uh, temples being burned etc but the thing is that fake news was sanctioned by the government if that news was not sanctioned by government was say a uh, Rohingyan being being hit by uh, by say the army etc the army uh, the or state media would have come out and clarify the matter and everyone would be uh, notified that this is the case and and, and see the disparity if a uh, disinformation is perpetuated by a foreign force and is so-called uh, unfavorable to the government it's very uh, uh, any authoritarian authoritative government would be uh, would find it easy to address the disinformation through the various network that they have but uh, inform disinformation that is perpetuated uh, by the government or by its uh, force, forces that's friendly to the, the establishment would, would find it very easy to just perpetuate it as it is because there's no uh, alternate soft to so-called push, push out the thing. Right, so I, <clears throat> that's important, uh, an important point because it's about restraint on authority which is quite key because right now we're assuming that the, uh, the, the authorities, the state institutions, they will always 
be somehow even-handed, effective. But that that's a assumption. And in cases, like I said, if they are being compromised from the outside, or sometimes they may be compromised uh, from within. Look, looking forward, your your laws need to be able to account for these sorts of possibilities because your your laws aren't just for the here and now. They are supposed to be, you know, very wide-ranging. They're supposed to be able to cover into the future uh, to take into account these these other possibilities as well. And the fact that we're not uh, really having a discussion about these uh, in public is to me uh, quite worrisome because, I mean, we are, I guess in Singapore, very familiar with one set of approaches to, to, uh, to rule and to governance. But I think it would be dangerous to assume that this will always be the case. And and in in this in this uh in this law uh sorry, in this proposed law, it's very likely that the government will be exempted from, uh, being charged under uh, so-called spreading of misinformation, uh, as 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 it did in say the administration of justice, as it did in, uh, whatever new laws that's coming out, you always find that the. PAP government is exempted from the legislation by itself. I mean, that's that's one discussion we didn't see in the select committee or any other discussions about fake news, right? Like, what happens when it is the the people in power who are doing it? Um, we didn't hear anything about checks on abusers of power, checks on, you know, um, figures of authority who might engage in, you know, propaganda and astroturfing and what. And so it seems like what we're really concerned about is this confluence of factors that that one we don't know whether it would apply to the state itself uh, and it seems like it might not um, it doesn't seem like if it is really about uh, stopping foreign interference and foreign disinformation campaigns it doesn't seem like legislation would be effective but it would pr- probably be you know super effective on targeting local actors who would probably, even if they were involved in the problem, be very small fish. So it seems like what the problem is, is that we are going to, we might bring in a law that's not effective against the very big problems, but could have the effect of really affecting freedom of expression in Singapore. Right. I mean, freedom of expression. And also, I mean, given the example I said, our actual security. I mean, that I think is, is what worries me the most. Our, our, the real sort of hardcore security issues that we need to be worried about, uh, that's just not discussed for some reason. So we could be heading towards a very massive own goal and Possibly. not talking about it. Possibly. So what should we do? What is, you know, it seems like the most serious problems that we have, we, we, we're talking about them, but they're actually not addressable by the government. And even where they are, our government seems very, our current government seems very intent on, um, you know, scoring an own goal. So what can we do? What should, what should the government do? And what can we do about this problem? So what should be done in the abstract is, I think, one, there needs to be independent fact-checking and multiple sources of independent fact-checking. So, uh, and it's not so much that the state tells you what it is. It, that This independence is important for credibility. It is important for trust. So people can cross-check across you know, different platforms that may have slightly different methodologies. Now, that, that's one. The other is, I think, to have a population that is more critical of the information that they receive, they more, that's more willing to question and to look for uh, different angles on, on, a, on, a certain, on any given issue. So that, 
that ability, I think, helps to inoculate, uh, inoculate the population against disinformation. Of course, for concerted efforts, it's going to be very, very difficult, but this gives a certain degree of protection. Uh, and it's, a, it's, it's both a state-led effort in the sense of to be able to mobilize the resources to do this, uh, the, the public education. Uh, the most effective way is, to, uh, is probably for the state to fund it. Um, but of course, you don't want too much of, you want the funding, but you don't want too much state direction given the risks of having too much of state overreach that I talked mm. about. Um, so you also need civil society actors, you need uh, more freedom of press, more transparency, mm. uh, such that people can more easily make up their minds and become familiar with ways of uh, checking information. I mean, one of the things that's quite interesting that has come up uh, now that the issue of uh, disinformation has been out there for a while, it uh, people who tend to be more susceptible to disinformation tend to be in the older demographic. Uh, people who are less familiar with the sort of multiple competing voices that you that you can even contending voices that you see um, online and, and social media so that that suggests that um, what PJ had mentioned earlier this familiarity with with uh, you know difficult complex sometimes contradictory information is a very useful ability to have and it's something that uh, individuals probably need to acquire but you know to to do so obviously takes time and, and, and effort and all that so it, it, it it's a bit of a challenge in that sense but it's I think the first line of defense in any case the select committee report does make you know it makes good mm -hmm. recommendations and problematic recommendations among some of the good recommendations are things like media literacy campaigns and education which you know I don't think anyone would really have a quarrel with. Everybody agrees that media literacy education is good. Um, then there are, there are recommendations that are good, but I think people should ask further questions. So for example, there was recommendation about supporting and fostering quality journalism in Singapore, which on the surface sounds like, again, a thing that who's going to argue with wanting quality journalism, but I think in the Singaporean context, we should really question what does that mean and and whether that actually can be achieved among the other recommendations, which would include things like, oh, we should have the gov the government should get powers via legislation to defund uh, platforms that we say publish fake news, and we don't know, you know, we don't know what they mean when when they say deliberate online falsehoods. We don't know who gets to decide if the platform is spreading deliberate online falsehoods. But the, one of the recommendations was that the government will have the power to defund these sites by basically blocking them from taking advertising and therefore blocking them from making money, which, you know, could have an effect if the government is just going to declare, like, for example, declare that TOC is um, publishing fake news as they have already without it being found in court. Then they could then take the step and say, well, TOC now doesn't get any advertising. And if TOC doesn't get any advertising, how are you going to fund yourself? Um, they've also, uh, one of the recommendations was also that the government should have the power to, um, to break the virality of fake news spreading on social media uh, that should be effective in a matter of hours, which suggests to me that, that this is not something that is going through a court. This is going to come in a sort of executive takedown order sort of fashion. And that was actually one of the one of the suggestions during the select committee, there were people who presented and said, oh, you should have an executive takedown order. And then 
the safety mechanism is if people are unhappy, they can seek a judicial review to get the thing reinstated. But if we think about it, you know, in the Singaporean context, who is going to take the government to court? Who is going to come out of that money and the time to actually go to court over, say, one Facebook post? Right. I think also the virality approach also looks at one particular kind of platform, well, two, two particular kind of platform, which is the public sort. So it can address uh, the Twitters of the world. It can address the Facebooks of the world. But another source of um, disinformation comes from these uh, private messaging networks, right? So your WhatsApp, your Line, your WeChat, um, uh, just, just, to, just to name a few, uh, Facebook messaging. So what happens here is it's far more psychological. It's because you have these networks of trust, um, that information gets spread along. So, you know, um, if I trust PJ and Kirsten trusts me and Terry somehow gets some false information to PJ and he sends it along to me uh, via our uh, you know, some private messaging service and I fig- figure, oh, well, it comes from PJ. You know, he's an established uh, historian of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I, I, trust, I trust what he says and I pass it along to Kirsten and she's, oh, yeah, sure, I, I know this guy. He's, he's sort of odd, but, you know, I generally trust <laughs> what, what he said, ha- has to say. And this is how a lot of that virality happens. Now, I mentioned these private messaging networks because they're very hard to monitor. And then even if you are able to monitor and catch some of the, the ways that it's spread, you know, how are you going to you know, catch all the sort of different areas in which this news is going out? That's extremely difficult. Um, yes, you talk about, well, okay, so you know, WhatsApp is under Facebook and all that. It's made, you, you can pressure the, the home company. Yes, that may be true. Um, but for other corporations that don't have a single world presence like Line, like Naver, which is behind it, right? Or WeChat, what are you going to do about them? Uh, will the governments that support them uh, or are closely related to them be susceptible to the pressure from uh, the Singapore state? That uh, remains an open question. Uh, so so uh, that issue of virality, I think, is only partially addressed uh, and based on a certain understanding of how virality works and leaves a broad area uncovered. And this is actually a realistic problem because what happened with the last municipal uh, and local elections in Taiwan was that a lot of disinformation was being spread, but it was being spread through line. Uh, there was some effort to create bots that could you could then you know put in uh, correctives and all that, but it's still very, very challenging. And there's only so far you can push a tech company, right? Because tech companies are not under pressure from, say, Singapore alone. They have other pressures. So, for example, Mark Zuckerberg recently announced that Facebook is now going to care a lot about privacy and we are going to, you know, do this and that about privacy. Um, they still have their data center in Singapore. So, you know, people are already um, asking questions about that. But if they are under so much pressure around the world, to emphasize privacy, you're not going to be able, as like the Singapore government or any single government, say, break your end-to-end encryption for WhatsApp so I can see it. Because a tech company will just be like, this affects our bottom line, this affects our business model in the big scale of things. Why would why would they do that? Right. So this you're looking at more international level kinds of regulation, which are extremely hard to do. So we've seen this with climate change. There are efforts, right? Um, but they are extremely difficult. There there are more slightly more successful efforts with say uh, chemical weapons and uh, and landmines. But still, these processes take a lot of time. 
and it's not something that any single state right can address on their own. Uh, but that also brings us to the question of if we are then making ourselves susceptible to some sort of international agreement that is actually also inviting foreign interference in how we run our domestic politics. And so sometimes our thinking about the distinction between domestic politics and foreign interference, that line is very broad and actually very muddy. Um, so if that looking at foreign interference is part of the problem, it's actually part of the solution as well. There must be better ways of understanding foreign interference or in influence or, um, or uh, foreign actors working in, uh, in Simcoe's domestic context. Because it does exist, it happens actually quite often, right? Uh, so when you think about foreign chambers of commerce, when they write, okay, with, you know, the, the changes in the foreign labor law, I mean, that, that's lobbying. Um, when you look at uh, organizations like Redas, they will have they will have partners um, or associate members who are uh, Japanese engineering firms or Korean engineering firms. And when they lobby, they lobby for their interests as well. So uh, to sort of just assume that everything is foreign is somehow suspicious and bad, and not to get a better understanding about how we need to really manage and work with these multiple kinds of influences in a society and economy as open as Singapore's is actually quite problematic. It doesn't even have to be foreign organizations lobbying, right? Our prime minister has said, you know, Singaporeans need to tighten our belts and, uh, you know, uh, accept more competitive wages, basically lower wages. Otherwise, foreign direct investment will go elsewhere, not come into Singapore, right? So it, it doesn't even have to be a specific organization, specific company, but rather... Um, this whole idea that because our economy is so heavily dependent on foreign investment and you know foreign money, foreign multinationals, um, it, it then gives them a far greater say, far greater influence over our economic policy and even our social policy, you know, uh, in all sorts of ways, um, without us having to even think about whether it's just one organization. Right. So when it comes to looking at uh, foreign uh, influence on domestic politics, this is a conversation that needs to be far more widespread. It needs to be far more informed. So yes, you know, if there's going to be foreign influence, fine. Um, of course, there are broad structural forces like investment and all that that's very, it's very hard to do anything about. But when it comes to regulation, you know, perhaps putting on the table rather than saying, well, there's a lot of astroturfing. Well, yes, that's only one part of the issue. But, okay, which are the areas of foreign influence that are problematic, which are not, right? If there are foreign firms who are doing certain things, who, when you have foreign CEOs calling up the prime minister saying, well, you need to deregulate you know, my electric vehicle, for instance, mm, right? Yeah. Um, you know, w which, which kinds of foreign influence are permissible, which are not? There's not very much clarity. Uh, that's an area that I think needs a lot of improvement if we are going to try to tackle this thing about foreign interference and disinformation and have a law that is more effective and policies that are more workable. You know, there's a lot of suspicion and scepticism over this foreign interference discussion because people have seen foreign interference used as a justification for a lot of things, right? So, for example, the reason that Ping Dot needs to happen with a fence around it is because foreign interference of domestic politics, you know, to the point where you need to get ID checks to go to a rally for equal rights, which is a fairly universal thing. So, you know, it, it really runs the risk of people just seeing this as, oh, this is just another power play. And and that really affects public trust, right? So people don't trust that you actually want for the good of Singapore to deal with foreign interference. People just think, oh, this is, this is a power grab. 
Right. So, I mean, here's where authority comes in. Because one of, if I were a foreign entity and I wanted to affect politics in Singapore or any country, you know, yes, there are some occasions where you want to create a lot of chaos, but often that is not the case. You, if you want to affect change, you go for the powerful, you go for the establishment. And so with this talk about foreign interference, what we do not see are things like disclosure laws. Right when you have senior public servants or political appointees, you know when do they come into contact in situations that might possibly be construed as lobbying? Uh, what are the kinds of activities are these? What do we want to prescribe? What do we want to allow? Uh, what you know to what degree do we want to have reporting that is either to the parliament uh, or to the or, or made. Uh, open to the public generally so people can understand what are the different uh, interests that are at play. Um, this is something that we haven't really discussed very much in Singapore and for a talk of disinformation and foreign influence, it leaves a big gap in the, um, in the sort of set of things that you need to do. That reminds me of a comment that was made on Facebook that I thought was hilarious during the time when they announced that new narrative could not be registered because of foreign influence because of our open society funding. And then there was this, my favorite Facebook comment at the time was somebody going, but but why would they do that? Like, why, if there was foreign interference, why would they not, like, go for the powerful or hire their own, you know, super uh, PR campaign? And why, why would someone who wants to have foreign interference go, I am going to fund a freelance journalist, a historian, and a comics artist, and in 30 years, my world domination will be complete. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, why would you do that? You would just go... For the powerful, especially if you really wanted to run that influence, that's the social circle that you're trying to get into. Exactly. Um, which goes back to this uh, area that we talked about earlier about, okay, so we have all these laws, but how does it restrain those in power, those in authority? Um, because I think it, we would be naive and perhaps even irresponsible to think that people in positions of power and authority cannot be compromised somehow. Uh, and this doesn't have to be sort of nefarious because, because of you know, any sort of greed, particular greed on their part. I mean, when you look at the, the Singh Health breach, for instance, there's a pattern that's out there now with cyber attacks where people go, where, where attackers go for financial information, they go for health information, they go for personal information, and then they'll use uh, artificial intelligence to trawl through this data. They'll look for things like, okay, is a person in a position of authority susceptible to embarrassment because of health issues, or maybe financially they are in, in trouble, or actually more, more perniciously, if you have somebody who has a close love on a child, for instance, who is really, really sick. Right, and they need partic very particular kinds of uh, medical assistance. Then maybe you can go up to this person and look. You know, I can offer you whatever this sort of specialized me medical assistance is, um, and you just have to do whatever it is for me. And under those circumstances, incentives are very, very different. The sort of standard kinds of ways we think about deterrence uh, by exerting a lot of threat uh, that won't work. Uh, so. There are these things that, again, uh, there, are, there are these huge, huge gaps uh, that, we, that we need to address. And um, also, I think uh, when, you, when you look at the, um, the, the sort of uh, other stuff I talked about in terms of AI and, and, and health information, it's not something that is unique to Singapore. I mean, if you look at the reports that have been out there about the uh, health insurance breaches in the U.S., um, in, in Taiwan, in Australia, this and in, 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 the, in Europe, this is where things seem to be pointing toward. But we've not had discussed that even in relation to the Sing Health cyber attack. Oh, and by the way, you, you don't need people necessarily who are a, you know, important 
um, political appointee or senior civil uh, servant, right? You can go for a systems manager. You can go for somebody's personal assistant. That's mm. good enough. As long as they have access. Yeah, and it seems like access is, is really easy to come by in our system given the recent breaches. Well, what it seems like to me is that we have a lot of trust in authority, so we tend to centralize information a lot yeah. rather than to compartmentalize, such that if you are able to breach one node in a position of authority, you get access to a whole horde of information, as opposed to if it's broken up, you may get, I mean, the sort of the mitigation, if you will, uh, you may be able to get some if you compromise, but you're not able to get all. You may not be able to piece things together. That makes any breach more difficult to achieve success. And we've so far been thinking a lot about well, stopping the breaches and less about what do we do if it happens. And given the environment of how things happen with disinformation, with cyber attacks, they will happen and they will keep happening. In a way, it's a bit like you know um, marine uh, engineering and architecture, right? You build lots of watertight compartments such that mm. if some are compromised, your whole vessel doesn't sink. So coming back to us citizens then, you know, is the solution to just have a healthy skepticism towards authority or rather not the solution, but all we can do right now, skepticism towards authority, try and you know, develop more critical thinking and uh, just uh, you know, try and educate ourselves because that's, that's a lot of effort for Absolutely. the average citizen. Absolutely. I mean, th these are things that citizens sh ideally should do, but I recognize there are real costs to doing this in terms of time, in terms of effort. Uh, some, some of this push can come from the state, but the state, I think, in this case, should really trust its citizens yeah. um, that you know, we all do want the same thing, which is the good of our society. We may construe and understand it in different ways, and we then need a conversation to, in order for, for these kinds of processes to happen about how to fund and how in which directions to go. But that's not something we really have enough. Um, I, I would also say that uh, to get better institutions, better laws, this is something that citizens can ask for and should ask for. This is what your parliamentarians are for. Uh, when you look at polls, this is elections, right? These, these are things that you should voice and ask uh, the various uh, political parties and uh, candidates that are running for office for. Uh, that's what that's part of the election process, you know? Yeah. yeah, I think it's also, you know, while you educate yourself, which doesn't necessarily have to mean that everybody is studying to PhD levels of understanding of everything, you know, it sometimes it's just as simple as, well, I read this, um, let me go and Google a an article from a different publication to see if they bring up something else or or before I forward this WhatsApp message, let me just go and check it first before I send to like 200 other friends. And, you know, it, it could be simple things like that, but also not forgetting to push back against attempts to to use these as justifications to clamp down further. So, you know, to push back against things that erode due process to push back against things that are not transparent and to demand, you know, more information, better information, more transparency. That's why at the select committee, I had mentioned freedom of information. And that's something that, you know, every Singaporean can benefit from. Right. And I, th I think uh, on that level, right, also to push for, to actually support uh, independent fact-checking services in the plural um, and also support independent journalism. I'm making a plug for you guys here. Okay? <laughs> Basically, what Kristen says is actually true. In terms of ha having the people, the, the ability to check for themselves, a diverse media platform, uh, a 
diverse media environment and also having the government to put uh, to really embrace the idea of transparency the um, figures that he holds he cannot uh, like try to conflate things together and say oh this is a story uh, particularly Singaporeans and PRs they like to conflate together so there are a lot of figures that it should be putting in bare figures and for uh, like independent fact checkers or media platforms to, to refer to and come with their narrative and, and explain to the people whether or not certain stories are true or certain stories are not true um, whether it's on CPF whether it's on the, the healthcare expenses and etc mm, and 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 I, I personally don't don't believe that legislation is the way forward to to ensure that there's no uh, deliberate falsehood, particularly in skepticism that the government are the perpetrator of fake news. Right, mm-hmm. and I, I would be a little bit more pessimistic because I think falsehood is out there, is here to stay. Historically, it's always been the case. It's a matter of how you deal with it. Um, it's not that you can eradicate it. I think that that's really uh, uh, chaotic, right, to believe that you can eradicate um of disinformation. Yeah, I think to to build on that, you know, some level of personal introspection is always important to to question yourself as well and whether the assumptions that you hold are actually true, whether you've actually have evidence for these things that you believe. So for example, over the past year there was this big scandalous story about how an award-winning journalist from a German publication had turned out to actually made up a whole bunch of his stories and he was found out because he he wrote this story about some small town american you know some small american town and and the people who live in that town was like yeah that's not us you've literally made up all this stuff and there was a it forced a lot of reflection upon how could this possibly happen because he was very well respected in at his paper and in his field and one of the one of the comments that came out of that was because the stories that he'd written about small-town America played into so many German assumptions and stereotypes about small-town America that people didn't even think to fact-check because it just reinforced things that they believed that were not actually true, that they didn't even realize that there might be something to check. So, you know, some of the most dangerous sorts of things are things that we don't check because we assume them to be true and they're actually not. So um, what I want to say there is one of the big issues here is confirmation bias. Uh, because as humans, we like to we are comforted by when we, when we feel we're right. And when we see information that is discordant with what we believe, we we've generally feel unsettled. Um, the cognitive dissonance, right? So, you, so there's a tendency when you see things that confirm to what you believe, uh, you want to believe them, even though they may or may not be true. So that ability for self-introspection to question yourself and your assumptions is really, really quite key. So whether it's dealing with... Um, online falsehood, whether it is, uh, you know, dealing with public policy, these should not be acts of faith, right? Uh, get understanding and policy and law, these are not acts of faith. They demand understanding, they demand uh, a certain standard of proof of evidence. That's, you know, where I get worried as well, because, you know, if we have laws that would allow, you know, for content to be taken down and con- people to be sued and jailed and everything, because... It doesn't, you know, it doesn't gel with what we believe, or we feel that it spreads disharmony in society, and all these different ways to stop people from talking, creating an environment where people are not challenged with seeing things that they don't agree with, and they're not 
learning how to deal with conflict and disagreeing with one another in good faith, then we actually we actually erode that. We actually erode the self introspection because then there's you don't see anything that challenges you. You just kind of go along with it, right? And be like, oh, if the if the officials say that it's true, it must be true. And then you don't you create an environment where you don't have to deal with conflict, and it actually makes you very bad at dealing with conflict. Right. So when it inevitably comes up, what we get is panic and anger and things getting very personal very fast rather than a society that actually knows how to engage in discussion right because just because just because you don't like something or you feel offended by something uh doesn't mean that you need to eradicate it or think that it comes from a really you know Ill, from ill intent right and in singapore i think we, we've gotten to a stage where sometimes we forget this where we are very easily offended when uh easy to call offense at least I, I don't know whether people actually really feel offended but they call offense and once they have that they want to shut down they they, they really lash out now for a society that's increasingly plural that is faced with increasingly different sources of information um you know to to label everything you don't like as disinformation actually does a disservice to the society. It means that you're less able to deal with complexity. You're less able to deal with difficult issues. And as a society, you end up being more brittle and more prone to breakdown. So how do we figure out if something is false? Like, you know, on a very practical level, rather than a sort of theory of knowledge, you know, what is truth level? But if I'm an ordinary citizen, how do we actually figure out whether what I'm reading, this this forward that I just got from my auntie on WhatsApp, you know, this thing that I'm reading on Facebook, how do we figure out if it's true or false? I'm being told that anything that comes from PJ is by default false. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> well, then we get into an interesting problem because what happens if I say, yes, everything I say is false? Then, ah. Ah. <laughs> We're going to need way longer for this podcast. <laughs> I think the first thing would be, you know, it doesn't hurt to just go Google and look up another source. It, you know, if you, it then t- turns out that it's true, then, you know, great. But if it turns out that it's false, then, you know, you would have stopped yourself from forwarding something false to somebody else. Say if the law, uh, say a WhatsApp message says that the law minister says something, something. So he has a certain code that's attributed to him or her. Um, so you just simply go to Google and just type out the exact words and see if there's any latest news that basically says that this person, if there isn't, then you have to question, so where did this code come from? It must have come from somewhere. So if you, if just a very fast search on Google does not uh, net any result, you can safely say that, okay, this is something that I wouldn't want to forward to anyone. Say if it's a picture uh, of a HDB collapse, a collapsed HDB, or, or, or part of the wall has collapsed, then very easy, just simply go to Google again, say, wall collapse HDB Singapore. And and you if there there is a happening, right, uh, immediately we see it. It is impossible for something that's that important, right, to appear on your WhatsApp. But and not yet, be reported. Uh, uh, not be reported. Uh, it, unless you tell me that it's a... Uh, your friend saw this thing and forwarded you immediately to say, that, hey, friend, friend, uh, this is what happened. But if it's a forwarded message, just meaning you don't know how many times it has been forwarded, that means it, it should be a third, fourth, fifth uh, account. And the news would have gotten it uh, already. Another thing to do, which you know a lot of us fall for, and I definitely fall for, is check the check the dates in the bylines yeah. of articles because uh, sometimes this this isn't fake news technically but old articles resurface and people react to them as if they're new 
And so, you know, things like, how dare this MP say this? And it's like, no, actually, she said that two years ago and, you know, maybe has since apologized or something. And then it resurfaces again and people get angry again. So that that's a very common thing because, you know, it could come from sources that are reputable. But just because we've, we've missed out the date, we don't realize that it's an old article. It's so it's a backdated reaction. Oh, <laughs> two years late, <laughs> lag effect. Yeah, lag. Uh, so I, I, I guess I generally try to be skeptical, but I, I agree, lah. So sometimes things from reputable sources, um, you know, that are backdated. That's something that I've sometimes sort of made mistakes on. Now, uh, generally, I suppose I try. Maybe my friends and family tell me this. Maybe why are you always so skeptical? Maybe that's sort of a professional disease that I have. But no, I mean, I guess try to be skeptical with things and and uh, and try to see if there are other uh, places you can corroborate information. That's a that's a good thing to start. And I I mean, you obviously don't do this with every single thing that you come across, but those that you think are sort of important. Uh, Obviously, you would want to forward things to your friends or friend because you think it's important enough. And if that's the case, see if you can corroborate it. I think that's the the basic uh, principle. I mean, other than the you know bits about saying, okay, well, you know, I would like more transparency, but you know, if I don't have that, uh, what do I do? Uh, so, this is where I think having more information out there for people to be able to find is actually useful rather than less. What about stuff that? Um no, like like for my work, right? Um, a lot of people tell me that it's simply too cheap for them to understand all these historical arguments, you know. But the historical arguments are at the crux of the dispute between our current government and myself, if I can call it that disagreement, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, my position is that there are multiple perspectives on perspectives on any situation. Um, whereas they seem very intent on on tarring me as a complete liar, but how would an ordinary Singaporean or anyone you know approach this situation where you have a lot of very um, technical arguments about the nature of historical proof, right? And you know, so not even just an academic thing, but say a debate over policy where there is a, a lot of very technical arguments going on about economic policy or transport policy mm-hmm. or healthcare. How would a Singaporean approach that? So I think that there are two issues when it comes to policy. One is, you know, if there are actual um, facts, right? Um, so statistics and so on and so forth. Now, but facts are one thing. Facts uh, in and of themselves don't carry meaning. Uh, you know, when we do policy and all that, they matter to us or they have implications because we ascribe certain meanings to them. And so I think sometimes it's useful, and maybe we don't do this well enough, to understand that lots of times when we are putting across a policy or a law, um, they are based on a certain understanding of facts, right? So um, a lot of it comes down to your prior beliefs. In, in a way... Uh, so, you know, you can disagree whether you want to be more market-oriented in your economy or more welfareist. It's not right, necessarily right or wrong. There are pros and cons to both. But ultimately, where people lean on, it comes down to where, what they, what they discount more, what they put a premium on. I, I, you know, I think, well, profits are, are really, really important. Or I think uh, having some sort of distribution and social stability is more important. Um, I think to understand that there are certain issues where 
there's there's not going to be a happy or oh, we all see the same truth and see the same thing yeah. that ten- to accept right that there will be this tension um, there will be things that make you uncomfortable and you just have to keep talking about it and you don't have any quick resolution is something that perhaps we can do more of in Singapore I think it's hard it's hard for the common Singaporean or is it common layman to understand the nuances of the debates that you have but it's easy if we were to break down into specific parts like whether Lee Kuan Yew lied about uh, in, uh, so-called uh, whether Lee Kuan Yew actually broke his promise to the Barisan about uh, retracting this uh, ISA for example I think that's actually easier and very straightforward for people to understand. But if you were to actually look at the grander scale, it's very hard because there's different interpretation of different right. segments. So I, I, think, I think that's yeah. a good example yeah. because um, whether or not uh, Lee Kuan Yew broke his promise to the Barisan is a fact. Yeah. But whether or not it was something necessary at the time yeah. is an interpretation right. that people will have. And people have very sharply divided views. But that's fine. Yeah. We need to learn to live with these kinds of things. Right. So with the in so-called the small little facts that's like being established, accepted by both sides and the individual basically gets one's interpretation or um, interpretation of how that, that whole segment of history actually transpired. I think that's easier for us to actually move forward rather than really uh, at the end game whether PAP was was uh, justified to do this or not. I think it's, it's, it's too wide of a uh, right, the, right. You know, decision. Right. Yeah, you guys are describing I think uh, a really good strategy mm. where First of all, you know, not to sit down and try and solve everything yourself, mm. but to discuss it with other people and to start exploring different perspectives. And then to, you know, especially people with, with different perspectives from you, right? Have an, a good, honest conversation and, and then try and find common ground through facts, Great. right? And realize that the difference between you is not really the facts, but, you know, your values, your interpretation of it, which can be equally valid. And through that, you know, come to a, a far greater understanding of the situation. And I think that's fundamentally the most important thing for us Singaporeans. We need to really have more conversations and learn to talk to each other a lot more about very sensitive issues, important issues, and uh, to do so in a very constructive and safe way. Right. And it's not about imposing your view or yeah. convincing the other person because mm. that's not going to happen. Or setting it, petition. Right. It's, a, it's about how we learn to live with our differences and make good use of them rather than to say well because I don't like what you say you I will have to silence you and you know make sure you you can never speak again or something like that yeah I think we we really emphasize sometimes too much that we think what is right and true must have consensus so we tend to get into discussions where essentially what we're doing is trying to browbeat in each other into having some sort of consensus but maybe what we should be doing is accept that there are some things on which people will never have consensus. Mm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right, and to accept that maybe you could be wrong. I mean, as uh, people who, well, PJ and I, like people who you know try to submit things to journals, we get told we're wrong and our arguments are stupid all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so you sort of get used to it and it's not that big a deal. Yeah. Okay, on that note, I'm reminded of a quote by Socrates, which is that the only true wisdom is to know that you don't know anything. And I think that's a really important quote for us to keep in mind as we try and tackle fake news, disinformation, and uh, all these um, you know, huge challenges uh, that we collectively face as a society going forward. I was so nihilistic. <laughs> <laughs>
Would you prefer a different quote? No, no, no. It's fine. I'm just joking. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'd like to thank uh, our guests Ian Chong and Terry Shi. Thank you very much, guys, for joining us. Thanks a lot. And of course, my co-host Kirsten Han. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, be sure to tune in to Southeast Asia Dispatches, our fortnightly podcast series, bringing you news, interviews, and commentary from around Southeast Asia. And do check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. And support independent journalism. You can support the online citizen. Terry, if someone wanted to support the online citizen, what should they do? Just go to Patreon. Patreon, yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. And they can find the link from theonlinecitizen.com. Right. Now right. available in Malay and also Mandarin. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And of course, if you'd like to support New Narrative, please do consider joining us as a member at newnarrative.com slash join. Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. <laughs>